Hello and welcome to Writer's Block Podcast. Tonight's episode brought to you by Cock for when grout just won't do. I'm your host, J.R. Havlin. I'm a comedy writer. I talk to other comedy writers. You listen, you laugh, you learn, you love. That's Writer's Block in a nutshell. I think it's all pretty clear by now. And when it comes to comedy writing, my latest guest is top of the line. He is the sub-zero refrigerator of comedy writers. I'm talking French door, cabinet depth, the whole nine. Larry Wilmore, Emmy Award-winning creator of The Bernie Mac Show, co-creator of The PJs, original staff writer and producer for The Office, actor, gentleman, gadabout. There, I said it. And also, of course, The Daily Show's senior black correspondent. Larry's generosity with his knowledge throughout this episode is to the great advantage of blockheads worldwide. I'm looking at you, Sweden. And it ranges from the very specific to the basic but crucial. The best thing to do as a writer is, is become a producer and have to be accountable for the scenes that you're inventing. Uh-huh. <laughs> so if you say exterior rainforest, all right, motherfucker, what rainforest yeah. are we going to use? What yeah. exterior? Who's paying say, for yeah. that? Yeah, motherfucker. Larry talks about how he got started in the business, about why he made certain decisions in his career. He talks about the difference in writing styles for single cam, multi-cam, late night, sketch. He's done them all. And he closes it out with some amazing and enlightening stories about pitching your ideas to the people you want to have pay for them. And trust me, that can be a tough crowd. Am I still yammering? Shut it down, Havlin. Get to the meat of it. This is episode 22 with my guest, Larry Wilmore. You're part of the writer's block now. Good choice. Is it okay if I talk like this? Isn't that your natural way of talking? That's how I talk. <laughs> like a screaming robot. I don't know if that's okay or not. Larry Wilmore. Okay, I'll talk lower like this. <laughs> You really, I really kind of need you just to talk like you do, like... Okay, I'll talk like this. <laughs> you have forced me to use my real voice. <laughs> Everything else is a put on. <laughs> Writer's Block Podcast is delighted to welcome the Daily Show's senior black correspondent, Larry Wilmore, to the show. Larry! Woo! Yeah! <laughs> cue the... Thank you. Oh, stop, applause. please. Thank you please, very much. Wow. Please, me, stop. What a crowd. That's kind of a go-to uh, um, credit for you. The Daily but, Show, yeah, or? yeah. Well, you know, the, I mean, when you when you appear on uh, on things, mm-hmm. what do you what do you? Does it depend on what you're working it on? It depends what I'm doing because yeah. I'm like one of the true hybrids. You know? Yeah. So if I'm doing a writing thing, they'll probably mention the Bernie Mac show or yeah, right. PJs or right. Office, that kind of thing. If I'm doing a comedy thing, absolutely they'll mention the uh, Daily Show. And that sort of thing. If I'm acting, you know, just straight up acting, they'll probably mention, you know, some of my acting credits or that sort of thing. So let's just do a quick recap of the okay. uh, life of Larry Wilmore. Sure. Start with your uh, birth. Okay. Um, well, let's start with the conception. Okay. Yes. Uh, there is a story. That was a to lot that. more entertaining. <laughs> it was immaculate. So. <laughs> yes. Um, well, actually, I started my career. Um, in college, kind of going down two roads, doing, uh, trying my hand at stand-up comedy, doing like open mic nights. So it was starting as, as a stand-up. And as an actor, though. 
um, was also a theater. You were already trained a theater major. I was a okay. theater major in college, and I was like taking private lessons in in Hollywood. And I had joined. Uh, I got my first break at the Mark Tate Perform at their Improvisational Theater Project, and I got my equity card. So I, I was an actor's equity before I was even doing stand up full time. And um, we wrote the play through improvisation. It was this thing that we kind of traveled around. And while it's so doing stand up, also I had to write my own act. So. While I was doing stand-up and while I was acting, I was actually writing to do both of those things. Right, you know? right. So the whole time I was kind of becoming a writer. You were, yeah, you were yeah. doing what, like all of the things that you're doing right. now right away. Right, yeah, right away right. I was doing a lot of different right. things. You know? right. And, and uh, what I found out early on was how out of your control showbiz is if you're a performer. You know, and it's, more in control if you're a writer? Well, if you're a writer, you can always write scripts. Well, yeah. You don't well, need a job. Sure, and you can yeah. get better writing scripts while you're writing them. But you have to be acting to get better at acting. You know, you can't just practice it. You know, you can practice up to a point and work on your technique. But you really become better when you're doing it. Right. You know, when you have the pressure on and everything. But you can certainly get better as a writer, you know, writing screenplays and that kind of thing. Uh, TV shows, you, you make leaps and bounds once... You know, you get you start working, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, but because the, there's a it's whole a different, different thing to like sitting down and writing a screenplay where you're the only judge of it and um, right. and, and submitting that and having to do rewrites based on feedback and, right. and then having to deal with schedules. and. But, but many people, but it, because there's a skill that goes with having to produce a script in a certain amount of time. But there's also uh, people realizing that Don't talent. I know it. Yeah, I know. But people can become good writers by entering festivals and that sort of thing yeah. and contests. And uh, just uh, the only deadline is really trying to, you know, produce something out of their talent. So yeah. there is a way to do that. These days, you know, if you want to be a director, you can use your smartphone, for Christ's sakes, to direct right. a little thing, you know. But acting still requires something else going on. And so I always felt too much out of control. You know, early on I realized, uh, you know, I have kind of an entrepreneurial um, outlook when it comes to my career, you know. I paid attention when they called it show biz. You know, the biz part is the as important part. as the show, you know. Mm. And so I've always, you know, tried to take as much control as I could. Plus, it came out of necessity. I mean, as in, you know, I did a lot of political comedy and, you know, satirical comedy. And as a black comic, you were kind of more pigeonholed into one particular type. So it was hard to get you know, even auditions for certain things. You know? Really? Was that? And I really, <laughs> you said really, I get surprised. You never saw Hollywood Shuffle, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah, it's easy to get pigeon and that kind of thing, you know. But, um, so, I realized the more I can take control of my own career, the better off that I'll be. So, while I was doing, and stand-up gives you a certain amount of control. Yeah. But even stand-up, you're at the mercy of some forces. So, I decided to go into writing for television at a certain point, just so I could eventually produce my own thing. Eventually, yeah. So just mm -hmm. kind of taking control of like taking creating control. your own, right. creating your own content. Exactly. Yeah, Sarah Silverman. I right. talked to her uh, on on one of the podcasts, and she yeah. was mentioning the same thing. That is like that's, that's, that's what's decision. most important to her is to right. be able to like, which makes it difficult sometimes to work with the work with networks and stuff. Right. Um, but uh, but you've done a lot of work with networks. Right, but not really from a, a performer standpoint, no. because I really started from the beginning as a writer-producer. I wasn't trying to package my own thing when I started. Like, I wasn't a comic who was writing his own 
Right, right. You're, you're like, and, and this was probably around the time of Seinfeld, so that's what people were right. pushing you to do, probably. I rem- Well, no, because I wasn't that big as a comic. I was a club comic, and I did well, but I wasn't a name that anybody really knew at yeah. the time. I mean, the biggest thing I did was I won a few Star Search episodes. You oh, know, did you? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Tell what to, against who? Do you, it had to be somebody that we know. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Come no. on. I, I doubt it. Kathleen Madigan. No, I God. <laughs> Kathleen would have smoked me. No, <laughs> Kathleen's hilarious. You lost terribly. Me? No, I love I love Kathleen. Alabelle. No, and Kathleen was a thousand times funnier than me back then. Alabelle, he was a good buddy of mine, actually. Oh, yeah? We started at the Newport Beach Lap Stop back then. Yeah. I love And I just Al. did a cruise with Kathleen a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, Lewis the Black. Hodgman thing. Oh, the yeah, Lewis, Lewis Black, Black thing. Yeah. Was Hodgman in that? But for, No, he like, wasn't there. But uh, there were a lot of fun. Yeah, there. that sounded amazing. It was fun, actually. Yeah. That was an amazing, uh, that's one of the most amazing things I've done. It was so much fun. But um, so, anyhow, that's what I decided to do. Just write from television, start from the beginning, just start at the bottom, work my way up, and really learn to do it. So my relationship with all those people was only as a writer. None of the people at the networks, when I was coming through the ranks, even knew I was a performer. So that was all news as to them. When you were coming, yeah, right, okay. That, it was news to everybody when I started performing a few years ago. That you were even doing It was stand-up? a surprise. It was like, oh, we didn't know Larry could Let do Let alone that. that you were an actor, no one a knew. trained actor. No one knew. The, but you didn't necessarily play it that way, or did you? No, 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 no. Okay. I just didn't care. Right, right. right. You know, I knew I had to really immerse myself Focus in this on a thousand percent and really learn how to do it well. And when you're right. talking about coming up through the ranks, let's just talk about some of the shows sure. that you've worked on. Because one of the things that we were talking about was that you've I've pretty much participated every, in all the every genres. Type. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, I started in late night television uh, on the Rick D's uh, ABC late night show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where uh, they were trying to push him as a Johnny Carson. Did type Rick Dees do Disco Duck? Or yeah, yeah, okay. That was his claim to fame. Yeah, Disco Duck. It was it. It literally was his claim to fame. I'll actually. put the, I'll put the link in there for everybody yeah, for all, for anybody under fifty. I know it was kind of scary though. I don't know if I should say this, but uh, I remember. Uh, well, there's a difference between. I love that. I, I love when sentences start with. That. I know it's great. I'm gonna get in trouble for this, but. Well, because this isn't really a slam. It's an yeah, observation. No, no. Yeah, it's sure. an observation. Because he was Rick Dees was always a very nice guy. Seems like a nice guy. Very nice to me. He he is a very nice guy actually, but um, but he's not a comic. Uh-huh. And I and he's I, a radio guy, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I had written for comics while I was doing stand up. That's how I first started writing. You know, writing for myself and writing for other comics. So uh, making the leap to late night television, you're just writing for a comic, basically. Right. But he's not so a comic. So you think you had to so create his comic persona? Well, here's what's challenging: like when you know you don't line up with someone's way of thinking. Uh-huh. Here's the revelation. You didn't line up with Rick Dees. You didn't. Here's how I found out. Here's what I found out. <laughs> because because you assume everybody thinks like you as a comic. If well, you're, sure, of course. If you're in the world of comedy, because they think the if you're in thing the world possible. of comedy, you should. You, we think the same. We're trying to make jokes, right? right. Okay. So I remember. <laughs> so you would think. Go right. ahead. I like when I talk to you, Jr. We're in the world of jokes. We yeah, know we're, right, right. we're right there. So I asked him once what was his favorite song, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, the uh, number one song. And I said, oh, what is the number one song? He, he goes, said the number one yeah, song. Yeah, and I said, oh, I, and then I go, oh, what is the number one song? Because I wasn't paying attention. I didn't know what the number one song was. So I go, what is the number one song? And as I was thinking, he goes, no, 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 whatever song is number one. <laughs> <laughs> but he, and he wasn't kidding somehow. He was not kidding. And when I realized he wasn't kidding, my expression was just blank, and I never had, I never asked him another question. But he was a DJ. Exactly. Wow. But I realized that I can't write jokes for someone that doesn't have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. And how long had you worked there when that happened? I'll only stayed there for six months. But um, 
I went from that job to In Living Color, which was a big break for me. Yeah, you were That was a huge break. In Living yeah. Color, yeah. In Living Color, I always tell people it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> Tough show. Only because big, huge it was schedule. so hard. Yeah. So hard. I mean, You said a lot of pitching, Worked right? till three in the morning most of the time, pitching all the time. The second year I was there was worse than the first. But the second year, we pitched almost every day at one stretch. And this was uh, all under Keenan. Keenan was a really tough boss, very demanding. Um, funny guy, though. I mean, he like, was very yeah, funny. I, mean, I felt he was the, the show was. A I huge felt Keenan was thing. the funniest of the Wayans. If you talk, whoa, talking whoa, to them. <laughs> whoa, I can end this now. Right. Well, who is your Wayne? I don't. I can <laughs> name one other one. Right. Uh, and now it seems like Marlon's one of the most talented, actually. He's done some good movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some but Keenan's a great storyteller. He yeah. can just sit down and tell you stories all day. Well, you got to tell, tell that story, if you don't mind, about uh, uh, the Jim Carrey. Oh, I at, was there when the, Jim Carrey table first spoke out of his butt. Yeah. Okay. I was there. The... Uh, do tell. When man first discovered fire. <laughs> That's right. It's so close <laughs> to the same field. Exactly. Well, apparently, well, apparently there was some tension between Jim and Keenan. I guess I didn't know what was going on. You know, you weren't aware of this. No, it, it, you hear a lot of rumors and all this stuff. You know, Jim, I'm sure Jim was unhappy. Felt he was being treated a certain way. Who knows? Usually, those things happen on those kind of shows. You know. And this is year one, two. No, no, no. This was three. Uh, well, the show had been on the air for a few years at this okay. point. So uh, now at the table reads, Jim Carrey was brilliant at these table reads. We we've had we would have a sketch packet of like twenty five different sketches, and for all the characters that would come up for Jim, and he'd be seeing eighty percent of these sketches for the first time at the right at the table because many of them we just finish hours earlier, you know. And uh, he would have a full blown three dimensional character for every single one that was different and distinct, different like voice right away on, a, on just a by reading first it, read. just by looking at it. You know, his face would contort and he'd have a voice and something. And I would just... And it would be, always be different and fit. And, and, and amazing. Wow. That's so, you know, this incredible talent. He's un unbelievably talented. You know. so, uh, so we're at the table read. And this time, Jim is not putting a lot of energy into everything. So you know something. There's some tension. <laughs> you know, if he's not going, you know, and just putting all of his energy into it. It's like, okay, it doesn't it's sound like Jim's too heavy. You know? yeah. And uh, he's sitting right next to Keenan. And uh, you could just feel the tension that day. And then Jim, he, he, there's this one sketch, and I don't know what it was, but he got up and he started doing the dialogue out of his butt. <laughs> like the character was talking out of his butt. Now keep in mind, Jim does crazy stuff at the table read. So we just started laughing. It was funny at first. But he was also sitting right next to Keenan, and so his butt was kind of next to Keenan's face. <laughs> As he's still not right next to it. Right. But if you're at a certain angle, it's right next to it. And it was funny, but then it just kept going. He kept going. And it just kept going. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, it, nobody was just laughing anymore. Oh, you know? no. And it just got a little sad, you know. Oh, God. Just a touch sad. So that was the first talking out of the butt. Let's, so let's talk about the different types of shows. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about working for Rick Dees. That's late night. You talked about getting your job right. at uh, In Living Color, which is, more which of is a sketch, sketch show, right? Different from writing show. jokes, right? Yeah, and uh, um, and you know potentially different from SNL a little bit, but not necessarily. Same no, very kind close of style. to SNL. Just just the the only thing that's different is the actual style of the show, but not really the style of the writing. 
And now, like, and the difference there, like at Rick D's, obviously, you're just kind of writing late night, you're writing monologue jokes and stuff, and you're also trying to, you, but you have no idea where this dude's coming from. Yeah, so you're writing what I call, you know, bulletproof jokes, you know, jokes that anybody can deliver that are just freestanding jokes, which actually is a pretty good exercise. And, um, and you're thinking of bits to do, too, that are just, you know, those... But you don't have a personality in mind necessarily no, when you're doing... No, but, you know, you figure things out after a while yeah, of, okay. you know, based on their energy or, you know... But I'm just saying, I'm bringing that up in contrast to mm-hmm. In Living Color where, right. like, you're cre- now you're creating characters. Right. And you're creating characters that you know these... That the the, well, the the actors can play or create, right. well, there's, or they always bring stuff to it. Well, there's two things going on there. One, uh, sometimes you're creating sketch ideas based on characters that already exist, and a lot of times characters come out of the performer's like improv background. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people in the audition, they'll bring their characters to their audition, and then many times, like that SNL is famous for that, where right, yeah, people yeah. audition with these characters, and then once they get yeah, on the John show, yeah, John Belushi auditioned with the the cheeseburger, uh, cheeseburger. Then. No, I don't know, no, I th- uh, it might have been, but it was definitely the samurai, Joe Cocker. samurai. Oh, and the samurai, yeah. yeah, and probably Joe Cocker. I think he was, doing yeah, that yeah, right as a matter of fact, yeah. And uh, and Dana Carvey had Luke, all his. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say you, stuff, no. It was, yeah. I think it was the Blues Brothers that came from. They used to he and Dan Aykroyd used to do the Blues Brothers during. Like the Probably. between rehearsal and the thing, or during, like, right. they, they would just come out and do it, and then they then it then they put them on the. And show. They did a lot of stuff on uh, National Lampoon Radio. Yeah, back in those days, stuff yeah. came out of there. So, but you bring, the, but they would bring these characters, right? To, so, the, so all the people on In Living Color that brought certain characters. Sometimes well, that happens, okay. yeah. And then sometimes we'll come up with characters, you know, right? And write sketches, and then sometimes you have just pure sketch ideas that aren't based on characters that are just a funny idea, right? You know, or or you have a. Uh, actually, there's even more categories, and, or sometimes you'll have like uh, my friend Les Firestein, he, he was one of the funniest on the show. He uh, wrote a, a sketch that I helped him with called uh, "Jews on First, and it was basically Al Sharpton and Louis Farrakhan doing the "Who's on First routine, <laughs> but they're talking about racism and blacks and Jews and all that stuff, you know. And it was hilarious, you know. And we did it in black and white and they're in front of a curtain and all yeah, that yeah. stuff, you know. So that's just a pure sketch idea done with impressions you know right and then there was the music parody sketch idea where you know we used to always do parodies of music videos and that kind of stuff right you know, that was something popular that we did on the show the vanilla ice one was i remember popular one uh-huh. we did a michael jackson one that was pretty popular so those are kind of the categories oh and commercial parodies is another category of sketch you know snl has done a lot of those over the years and we we did our share of those so those are the major categories of sketch and um sketches are fun because it's, uh, you know, you, you only they're usually only a few pages long, you know, so it's not too difficult to devise a beginning, middle, and end. Usually the end of a sketch is the hardest thing to come up with. Though. Yeah, right, how to get really out. Really hard, to, which is why Saturday Night Live, their sketch is going forever, probably. Yeah, yeah and why, like, Monty Python would just yeah. kind of devolve into another yeah. sketch. the end is the transition. Yeah. You know, because it's... The end is a foot stomping on the sketch ground. Sketch endings are the hardest endings to write. The second hardest would be moving endings, moving endings, not Indians. And uh, <laughs> moving Indians are the hardest yeah. to. Yeah. And I'm I glad say, I didn't just right away go. Oh yeah, those are. Hard. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> those Everybody are knows movie oh, Indians are the yeah. hardest to write. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm glad I mean, you brought did it you up. See how the Lone Ranger did. There's <laughs> 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 the example, but uh, yeah, it's just my opinion. So, uh, but sketch writing is a lot of fun because. 
you know, it's topical a lot of times or, you know, character and that kind of stuff. You, you know, you, you're able to think of a wide variety of ideas to come up with. Right. Um, so, so, so on then, that type of sketch show. Yeah. Right. So, so, um, the, what was, uh, what was your first uh, sitcom? So after Living Color, I got a job on the show called Sister Sister. It was yeah. a show on ABC at yep. the time with uh, Tia and Tamara Maori, who are right. big, uh, uh, just got bigger and bigger. They do, they've done tons okay. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was with Jack A and Tim Reed. And uh, Cy Rosen was the showrunner, and he had started on the original Bob Newhart show and did the Wonder Years and that kind of stuff. And he was a great guy to work for. Cy was great because he was the kind of boss who he let you. Um, he taught everything to you. You went to editing with him. He let you go to the network oh, nice. notes. Huh. You know, wow. he, he involved you in all the different parts this of the show. This is something you didn't experience in other no, shows? No, you never got to do that. You were just a writer. So you know? were you spoiled? I mean, when that happened, did you At, did you go to other shows and be like, how come I don't get to go over here? Hmm. What's, what's up? No, more important than that, I learned how to do things. Yeah. That, that was more significant than being spoiled, I guess, you know, because I was hungry to learn how to do all this stuff, you know. Well, I think, mm -hmm. like, also, the it's it seems like uh, um, when you're put in that position, not only are you mm -hmm. learning how to do that mm -hmm. thing that, that you don't necessarily learn just being a right. staff writer, um, I, I, would, I would think that it also helps your writing because you, you can right. kind of think, you know, one stage ahead and you know Absolutely. certain restrictions and you know where you can go. Absolutely right. The best thing you can do as a writer is, is become a producer and have to be accountable for the scenes that you're inventing. Uh -huh. <laughs> so if you say exterior rainforest, all right, motherfucker, what rainforest yeah. are we going to use? What yeah. exterior? Who's paying for yeah. that? Where's are you the, sure where, you want to write that exterior yeah. rainforest? So you yeah, and that can and that can like mm -hmm. if you're if you're submitting a script for one thing or another, right. then that you know that can affect it in in many many ways. Like right. you're talking about just logistically how difficult a certain right. scene that you're writing is going to be financially, right. how mm -hmm. much it's going to cost if. You don't keep that stuff in mind. The people reading it are right. going to know, and you're going to get fucked. Not because it's not good necessarily, mm -hmm. or even well written, it's but just it's, like, it's unusable. It's going to throw them off, yeah. right? And the other side of it is limitations always can unlock more creativity. You know, so many times, giving mm -hmm. a limitation, you're forced to be more creative, and sometimes you'll come out with a better product because of it. And that happens to so many writers because writers work well under pressure when we're forced, when we're limited. It's sometimes the worst thing you can do to, to give a writer is freedom. <laughs> it's to say you can do anything. There's no restrictions. That can be very difficult for a writer. So even the slightest restriction is better than no restrictions most of the time. Right. Not all the time, but most of the yeah. time. Yeah. But um, so that was a great experience working on that show. Um, to learn all those things. Uh, it was kind of more of a, a kid's, uh, kind of a TGIF Friday type show. But it was funny, right. when I got to the show, I was used to doing this real edgy type of comedy. We were doing racial humor, you know, and, and living color yeah, and all that it stuff. it seems like... A, I mean, we, we were making age jokes in the writer's room. You, you know, it was a totally different culture at this safe little sitcom. Right. And I was also used to pitching a thousand ideas at a time. I remember our first pitch day, you know, I said, okay, anybody got any stories? You know, people were pitching one or two stories. I had like 20 stories to pitch. <laughs> You're ready to go. Yeah, I'm like, what? That's all yeah. you have? Are you and kidding me? 18... And I got more tomorrow, folks. I got yeah. more coming in. And 18 of them were AIDS themed. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> this is dying AIDS man. Tia gets AIDS. AIDS. <laughs> right. Wait, exactly. let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Yeah, that's only half the joke. That's part of the joke. <laughs> Where's the joke? <laughs> what was good about sitcom? And that's a that was a multicam. That was a multicamera show. Yeah. So that show by multicamera for people that aren't familiar with these terms, multicamera sitcom uh, is a sitcom that is 
shot in front of a studio audience and there's like a, a flat set type of look um, almost like a proscenium stage but it's uh, sets that are set up in front of the audience and the cameras are set up around this set and the actors uh, act in the set they're right in front of the audience and the laughs that you hear the laughs coming from the audience not necessarily what people think is a laugh track so it's a misnomer when people say, that's a laugh track show. No, it's a live audience show most of the time. Yeah, but laugh track shows existed. Yeah, but those are like Get Smart or yeah, right. MASH right. or, you know, they were really single camera shows with a laugh track. Right. You know, but many shows are enhanced by laughs, uh-huh. but they're still a live studio audience show. Right. You know, it's really, they're really live shows, studio audience more than their laugh track. With the exception of some shows, there's some shows like How I Met Your Mother, which never shoots in front of an audience, and that's actually a laugh track. So, right. There was no live audience. So uh, after uh, I did multi-camera, yeah, I, I uh, co-created the PJs with Steve Tompkins, who was a writer in The Simpsons that we met in Living Color, and uh, he also wrote on The Critic. And uh, that was a great show because all of our skills that we'd used, both in sketch, even stand-up, and you know, in traditional sitcom, we took into the world of stop-motion animation. Mm-hmm. You know, because we were writing, you know, these puppets lived in the projects, as Eddie put it. And uh, so a lot of it was, you know, hard-biting satirical humor, which, so we brought all our In Living Color chops, but all of our storytelling abilities from, from uh, sitcoms we used, too, to do that show. Animation was really tough, because when you're writing, you almost have to be the director um, as well, because you have to describe everything in detail, because the animators have to know exactly what things have to Even look like. They, yeah, right, like you have to do right. the acting. There's no such thing you as... You have to write that all down, then, for well, the yeah. animators to be able to... And you have to storyboard, you know, and you have to clearly show how things look, because uh, there's no such thing as footage, you know. <laughs> yeah, we got coverage from this site. Is, is, don't read... we have a close-up? No, 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 no. But that's you're like shoot... a shooting script kind of thing, right? Because when you read, yeah, like, I've read a Simpsons no, script it's... or something, and yes. it's it, like, it, like that not, it, it's not necessarily that detailed, it doesn't seem. Well, it comes in the storyboard, and it's it's actually more descriptive than, than other uh, writing. Okay. You know, it's more detailed, you know. But, um, but you also storyboard and do, um, what are they called? Um, animatics, I think they're called, where you're very much in detail showing how things should be played, you know, so that when the people are animating it, they know exactly what you're doing. So it's not a surprise. Right. Um, because you know how the joke should be played, you know, and how it should look. So you're really kind of the the director and the writer at the same time when you're writing that show. But there's also a director. There is a director, so I'm not taking credit away right. from the director. But your job as the showrunner, writer, too, is to have, to write it with a visual sense in mind. So it's very important. Um, Trayvon, Whereas on a multicam show, you wouldn't be writing with that visual sense necessarily. Trayvon Free, writer for The Daily Show, friend of ours. Ooh, name at, at Trayvon, like he needs the fucking help. <laughs> right. Um, He's got way more followers than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have him tweet this out too then. He asked me to ask you to tell me your favorite or the most memorable joke from the PJs. Well, Trayvon, <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of Larry, wait, he's taking his pants off. This is weird. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Sure, absolutely. Uh, In the pilot that Steve and I wrote, this was uh, Steve's joke. It was still one of my favorites, and I quote it all the time, where we had a crackhead in the show, and he was talking to the super, played by Eddie, and he had to leave, and he said, well, gotta go. Crack don't smoke itself. (laughs) One of my favorite jokes. (laughs) It's still one of my favorites, because that was his job, smoking crack, so he had to go. That's his joke. (laughs) But I think Trayvon was talking about something about uh, the black lifespan. 
Oh, yeah, that was one of my favorite jokes where the kids were talking. <laughs> Your other favorite joke. Yeah, the kids were talking together. This was one that I actually wrote. And Juicy and Calvin's, and uh, I think it was Calvin who told Juicy, Calvin, I hope we never grow up. And Juicy says, well, the statistics are in our favor. <laughs> <laughs> and they started laughing about it. And it was such a hardcore <laughs> joke. You know? All right, we'll be right back with Larry yeah. Wilmore. Or will we? And Trayvon Free. No, wait, what? Wait, no, wait, no. And it's halftime at Writer's Block Podcast. Get up, stretch your legs, sing a song about America. Something nice, not that Lee Greenwood shit. Unless you're into that, then feel free to hum it quietly. If you want to learn more about Larry Wilmore, and you do, check out thelarrywilmore.com and or follow him on Twitter, at thelarrywilmore. Speaking of which, if you're not already following the show, do it, at Writer's Block Pod. Also, be sure to add writersblockpodcast.com and allthingscomedy.com to the bookmarks on all your internet-connected devices. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and send all your questions, suggestions, and tasteful dick pics to writersblockpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, tasteful. That's very important. This is art, people. Now let's get back to my conversation with writer, producer, actor, and Daily Show senior black correspondent, the Larry Wilmore. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, um, your experience at the office because I want to talk about uh, uh, just kind of uh, adapting something, which is another aspect okay. uh, uh, from a, from an existing show, and then a little bit about uh, uh, the the Bernie Mac show and uh, creating something from scratch and and pitching. So uh, sure. so first the office. You were there from the beginning, right? I was, although Greg Daniels adapted the office, but he. Did you witness that process, though, or do you know? Uh, like, you know? Well, I was kind of around, but not really. But that's a, it's funny because the adaptation was, was uh, you know, when you're adapting a, a TV show that already exists, different from adapting like a book or, you know, a work from another genre type of thing. You're, you're just doing the same TV show, but it, you're making it more American, let's say, you know. And uh, Ricky and Stephen, Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant, I've or slightly involved in it <clears throat> a little bit. But um, Greg just wanted to make the show uh, just, you know, making sure it would work here, and but keeping the same dynamics. You know? And there were some challenges in that. One of the challenges was the David Brent character himself, or Steve Carell uh, uh, playing it here. And, and it, he was so harsh. I mean, Ricky Gervais did a masterful job in that, because to make a character so unlikable like that, hilarious and funny... We noticed in the pilot, Steve Carell almost came across a little too harsh. To the pilot episode was the exact same script yeah, that's um, right, as yeah. the English episode. And when we came in to do the series, we started developing episodes that were more for the, for the American audience at that point. So Which like the, seems like a, vague, a relatively vague instruction, uh, you know? Yeah, well, I think the network at the time... Which is like everybody's eating a hot dog or something. I mean, you know, it's like... You mean we're pitching stories? No, no, no. How do you how, how do you make some when you just say, well, we made the script more American? You know what what is that? Well, mean? because we generated stories from scratch. We didn't generate. We didn't use their scripts anymore. This the pilot script for the for the UK office was the same as the pilot script for the American. Just a few things were changed, names and a few circumstances here and there. But basically, the script was the same. Starting with the second episode, which was uh, Diversity Day. That was completely came out of our heads. In fact, I think I pitched featuring Diversity actor Day. Larry Wilmer. Yeah. And, um, you know, and every episode since then were ideas that we came up with. They weren't ideas that existed in the UK version. 
So the pilot is the only thing that is the same, you know. And uh, one of the things that was a challenge was kind of softening Carell's character because Steve himself is a very kind of sweet guy, you know, and he's one of his um, pluses is he is so charming, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so by the second season, one of the notes from the network, and I think Greg felt this way too, was kind of softening him a little bit. So that was what they did, and I think it really worked in a nice way. And he was still able to play the other side of it, but he wasn't as harsh as the way Ricky played it in Weekend. So that was one of the challenges to adapting something. You know, you couldn't do the exact same character because because you had an actor that it just didn't work quite with. It was just know. a different... Yeah. Because of the actor, you have to, casting is a huge part of those types right. of things. Right, and, and if you, you had know, had a different Steve actor, was, Steve was known already. I mean, he was well, known not really. Not, but, but no, he don't. Well, 40... I guess he was just known by me. Well, <laughs> but, people that watch the Daily Show, well, Forty Year Old Virgin, right? Yeah, but it had just come out. In fact, Forty Year Old Virgin came out the summer after we premiered. You know, because oh, okay. we, we did horrible our first five episodes. But Everybody that was, canceled. But that, then, then there's your huge uplift with. A little bit, but we still weren't doing that well. It was huh. iTunes that saved our ass. Really? Because people were... Um, iTunes had just started allowing people to download shows, and, and The Office was doing incredible on it. And because our first order was only for five episodes, plus the pilot. And then for the second season, they picked us up for like six. <laughs> so we Ooh, thought we were going to wow. be finished yeah, at yeah. six in the second season. So every time we were pitching episodes, we were pitching it like it was our last show, yeah. you know, which is how we wrote that you second season. You were a staff season. writer. Yes, I was one of the producers on the on yeah. the first three seasons. So, uh, you know, we were pitching that way and just writing like, you know, we could be finished in this six episodes or whatever. And then they gave like us... Like the whole time you're thinking, how, you're, from how the do we end you're this? Thinking, how do we wrap this it's up? It's true, but it was great because we were putting everything on the page. Yeah. You know, we were just pitching lots and lots of story and stuff. And, uh, and Greg wanted the actors to improvise a lot too and that sort of thing. And that's how a lot of the characters started to develop, some of the minor characters. And we were then right to that, you know, and pitch ideas for that. And then after the six, we were getting close to the six, they gave us seven more, so we had 13. And But we thought we were going to be done at the end of that order. And then after the iTunes kick, we got the rest of that second season. And then after that, and that was Kevin Riley, you know, who was the head of NBC at that time. If he hadn't liked the show as much as he did, Office would have lasted five episodes and that would have been it. Isn't that amazing? All that, yeah. all that drama, and and it becomes like this iconic show. In fact, when I told people I wrote on The Office before we aired, like writers would go, "Really? You worked on The Office?" I go, "It's gonna be good, trust me." And they're like, "Okay," because Couplings had just came out uh, here in America, and that was a British show, and nobody really cared for it. They thought we screwed it up, you know. And, in and fact, everybody was, uh, and everybody was such a big fan of the British Office. British version. Now, when I was doing the Bernie Mac show. I actually was in England once uh, doing this TV symposium, and I showed the pilot of the Bernie Mac show, and I was there with, with the producer from The Office, and this was like in 2002 or something. And this is way before The Office was coming here, right? People hadn't even heard of The Office here yet, and I had never heard of it. And I thought, oh, man, that show's hilarious. And we were all talking afterwards, and he goes, oh, Larry, I love your show. I go, oh, no, I love your show. Your show's great. He goes, make me promise. Promise they'll never bring The Office to America and screw it up. Stephen Merchant said this. No, no, this is Ash Atala. He was oh, one okay. of the, the producers. And I go, oh, trust me. We'll, we'll never do The Office in America, and I'll make you this one promise. If it goes there, I'm never going to be working no, on it. Yeah. And cut to <laughs> the biggest smash cut to lie in the world, you know. I'm working on it. Not only that, the second episode, I'm on it just to rub it in their faces. Yeah, 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 right. did, did he contact you? No, no, no. I never saw it. So uh, that was pretty funny. <laughs> Go figure. 
Um, well, talk a little bit about the, uh, Bernie Mac then um, developing sure. developing that. Is uh, did Bernie approach you? Did you approach Bernie? Did did a, a, a studio put you together? No, I approached Bernie to do this show. You knew I him already, kind of. But I saw him in uh, Kings of Comedy, uh-huh. and um, and at the time I had just uh, I had finished the PJs and I had to deal with uh, Regency Television to develop something. I'm just trying to think of what to do, and. Um, I remember Survivor had just started, and uh, reality television was just starting to get a hold. And I wanted to do a show that kind of had the feel of being real, like the real world was a big thing at the time. And there was a show called 1900 House on, on PBS where they rigged this camera in a house, and people had to live as, yeah, if, as yeah. if it was 1900. Right, right. And I thought, I Man, that, that is fascinating. That so was I, that long ago? Yeah, and I wow. wanted to do a show where I just rigged cameras in a house. And I did a sitcom like that where it looked like we were eavesdropping on the action. And they had this confessional camera in 1900 House for people who would say, okay, yeah. I, I stole a candy bar today. No, I shouldn't have done it. You know, and they would say these types of things. And I thought... I had a Coke. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I feel so bad. And so I came up with the idea of doing a show where it felt like we were observing the action and there was this confessional where people would, would talk to it like that. You know, But I didn't have... That was it. I didn't have any more than that. Then when I saw Bernie and Kings of Comedy, I thought, oh, it would be hilarious to have Bernie Mac in a house with these kids, his sister's kids, that was uh, one of the jokes he did in his act. His sister was on crack, had to take care of the kids. I thought, you know, with that emotional, you know, underpinnings, I would be drawn into it like it's real, because I wanted to have a sense that it was real, you know. And so I pitched it to Bernie, and he loved it, thought it was great. And then I pitched it to Fox, and they bought it in the room, actually. And it was very challenging. Just handed over a bag of cash. Yeah, there you go. With a dollar yeah, sign Don't come it. back till it's done. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but what was, at that time, all the shows were multi-camera shows. The only single-camera show at the time, I think, was Malcolm in the Middle. So to, to pitch a single-camera show was a big deal to, to sell it and everything. But it was, it was really tough to write because you have multi-camera rhythms in your head. And multi-camera rhythms are boom, boom, joke, boom, boom, joke. Yeah. Boom. In fact, there's a funny story where Gary Marshall is... Because uh, you have to please the audience. Anyway, yeah. you, you got to get that reaction. Right? And, and that style kind of evolved over the years, and people were used to that kind of style. you know. But I remember Gary Marshall, uh, I heard this story where he was uh, plotting out a Laverne and Shirley episode. Or something. Okay, uh, Laverne and Shirley, they walk in the door, joke. Uh, Shirley, <laughs> Shirley walks over to the couch, joke. Laverne uh, crosses back over to the refrigerator, she opens it, joke, joke. <laughs> Uh, she goes and joins Laverne at the couch, joke. Uh, Lenny and Squiggy come in, joke. Uh, boom, boom, and you're out. Okay. All right. Let's write that up. Great. <laughs> I know. Boom, boom, and you're out, which I always love. That's kind of what it's like in the rewrites with I John know, Stewart. exactly. Boom, yeah. boom, and you're out. And we out. do a thing, and we go over here, and we do a stuff, and then do this one, and then do that thing, and then exactly. we'll go. It is like, what is You guys it? got that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's no boom, boom. We're not out. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the rhythm of a multi-camera show. So to write a single-camera show, it's a different rhythm. It's not based on jokes. You know, you're, the action is more internal. You know, the, the story that you're telling is more based on the rhythm of the editing, you know. And uh, so I had to re-kind of learn the writing as I was doing it, you know. So right. it's, it's a big challenge. So, yeah, because you'd never worked in that before. And no. re, you know, Well, what do you mean, relearn? Or were you kind I of had inventing to re- it in your own yes, head? Yes, I had to reteach myself. You didn't really have much to go on. No, nothing. Interesting. Well, here's what I did. I watched the real world over and over, and, and I was watching it. And I would. they would go to commercial. As a study for your... As for a study the for the rhythms, for the rhythms of it. Because I wanted a realistic yeah. kind of rhythm. Sure. And I'm like, 
okay, why do, and I remember at the act break, nothing particularly happened, you know, and the show would come back. I go, okay. And I kept playing that back. Why do I want to come back and watch this? I mean, it wasn't a <laughs> cliffhanger. question. Well, it wasn't a cliffhanger. It wasn't a dun-dun-dun, what's going to happen? You know, it, it would just go to commercial. But, but you want to come back. Yes. What's making you feel And like I kept that? asking myself, it? why? Why do I feel like that? What's going on here? Why does it, because in a sitcom, I, the reason why I'm coming back is because I want to find out who stole the pie. You know, or I want to find out if they if they found if they if they don't think Jack is gay, you know, or yeah. this. There's a question that needs to be answered yeah. in most traditional sitcoms. They're usually um, based on farce, you know, and even if they're not, most comic writers write them like they're farce, even when they really shouldn't be writing them like that, you know. And uh, farce always sets up these situations that you know have to be dealt with. But in real world, farce wasn't being set up. Action was just being played out, and I wanted to come back. So I kept asking myself, why do I want to come back? And then I realized, after watching it, I go, you know what? I just want to see more of this person's story. I said, that's enough. And that was a revelation to me. And so I realized I could write towards that those type of denouements, so to speak, you know, and cl climactic endings without having it to be manipulative. So Bernie could come to the end of a beat in his journey with the kids, and then we can move on to the next one. There doesn't have to be any kind of manipulative, climactic ending at the end of act breaks. And so that was a big revelation Doesn't have to, to be me. such a clean... Doesn't have to be manipulative. So at the end of the first act, I can just end that beat, and I know that I want to come back because I want to see more of what's going on with him and the kids. You know, I don't have to manipulate the audience. <clears throat> and so it freed me up in how I was going to write. You know, So yeah. I could just write moment to moment and not try to manipulate story, manipulate plot. And I was making distinctions between plot and story at that time, some of my own definitions that really helped me out. You know? And uh, here, here's, here's how hard it was. I wrote the same three pages for about five weeks. I was squatting in an office on the Disney lot. I had a deal there when I did the PJs, but my deal had expired like a year earlier, but I kept going to the office like I was supposed to. And I just waved to the guards. Yeah, like George Costanza. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just kept showing up. It's true, you know, <laughs> just hiding out like a rat that was cornered in his office. And I'd go to the commissary every day. Hey, how's it going? Uh, yes, are you still? <laughs> yes, exactly. Hey, how's it going? And, um... And I remember I was I wrote the same three pages every day for like five weeks. Some days I wouldn't write at all, and I because I, I couldn't catch the tone. I just couldn't get it, you know. And I was panicking the whole time. Some days I would literally beat my head against the wall. I mean, panicked. I, at at the end of this, I was almost in a full blown panic that I wasn't going to deliver this thing. And I'm like, why did I pitch this stupid thing? I I don't know how to write this crap. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the end of five and a half weeks, something just clicked. I just caught the right tone. It just clicked. And it just poured out of me in like 36 hours. The whole script just poured out. I couldn't stop writing. And then that script, actually, I won an Emmy yeah. a couple of years later. Emmy Award yeah. winning. For Friday, that script that just poured out. There you go. There you have it. There's the story. Uh, we're back with Larry Wilmore. Not only the senior black correspondent for The Daily Show, but mm -hmm. uh, also the creator of uh, The Bernie Mac Show, which we were just talking about, a yes. fascinating process of mm -hmm. sort of creating, almost being in on the very early development of, uh, of a genre that almost kind of... It's really, really taken really off took since. Over. Yeah. yeah, it's really taken off since. And, and the idea of how you, you know, how you get to the point where you realize the difference mm -hmm. between the writing styles, right. and then it still takes you a while... 
mm-hmm. to grasp that, right. but you muddle through and you nail it. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea of like what makes you want to come back because right. it is so clear. It's That's true. the purpose of the regular multicam sitcom is right. to make is to hit that act break right. that, and make them come back, That's give right. them that 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 little you know who ate the pie thing. That's right. It's manipulative on purpose, yeah, so you and, don't change the channel during the commercial. Right, and the other ones right. you come back because you have an, you you have to create more of an emotional. You have an investment to, yeah, in the character's emotional character, life. Yeah. And you're not ready yet to give up that investment until you're finished with that particular meal. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And that's an amazing uh, uh, revelation. And yeah. I'm, I'm interested when you talk about those few weeks where you mm-hmm. were kind of stuck. Now, yeah. do you consider that writer's block, which no. I've finally begun discussing on this block. show? It is this not is, writer's block. So what is the difference then to you? And, and is you I know, have a different opinion about writer's block okay. than most people. I believe what is called writer's block really is a lack of clarity, you know. And what I mean by lack of clarity is you don't quite know what you're trying to accomplish. You know, you haven't made a distinction in what you're trying to to produce at that moment. So you're confused. The block comes from a lack of clarity in what you're trying to produce. Because, look, we're professional writers. We can, JR, if I told you you had to write something and you have... 20 minutes to do it, you're a professional writer, you're going to do it in 20 minutes. You're not going to have a writer's block. John Stewart's going to win in 20 minutes, you're right. just going to do it. Might not be the greatest piece of work in the, in that's the world, a different but it's story, going to get done. But that's a different story. Yeah. Quality is different, than, but it probably will be because you, you're you good at writing under pressure. <laughs> you know? no, it's, tr- it's true. You, Been doing it a little while. You're a professional. Yeah. That's what you do, yeah. right? That's what I do. <clears throat> Usually writer's block, to me, comes more out of a lack of clarity of knowing what it is you're trying to do at the moment, what you're trying to generate. And many times, especially in screenwriting, that lack of clarity comes, I think, from knowing whether you're um, generating story or plot in the moment. A lot of that, you know, this requires a much longer conversation, of course. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, In sketch, many times the block comes from not knowing exactly what the piece is about, you know. And so your block comes from because you don't know what you're writing about. You're yeah. just coming up with jokes. Yeah, I have a friend. The the, yeah. the previous uh, previous episode uh, um, was with uh, my friend Chris Mundy, who's a yeah. creator, not a comedy writer, but creator of Low Winter Sun, which is mm-hmm. a new AMC show. Right. And uh, um, and hopefully premiered like Gangbusters right. by the time this comes on. But um, he was also had a, a very interesting thing to say, right. like. Until you know what you're writing about, right. that you know, then then you can't really write correctly. That's right. Now, taking the time to think of something is not the same as writer's block. Right. Those are two different things. Right. Because sometimes, yeah, it takes you. You're thinking of an idea and you're coming up with the right thing for it, and it may take a while to generate that. But that's not writer's block. You're just you're just going through options and coming up with a, <laughs> a solution for it, eventually landing on something. Writer's block is clearly not knowing. You, you're just blocked, you know, and that to me is just a lack of clarity with what you're doing. Because yeah. once you get clarity, you just then you blocked. then you, then you're not blocked because yeah, exactly. you can continue working. So it's it's exactly. before the writing, it's the idea part really. That's it's more like idea block. It's knowing what it's about. Yeah, you talked a little bit about going in and pitching the uh, uh, mm-hmm. the the Bernie Mac show. Right. Um, I know that I had a great conversation with you very early on when I, I, I think it might have been the first or second time I even met you. Oh, that's when uh, I was still being nice to you. Right? Yeah, back then, mm-hmm. you know, right. when, you, when you acknowledged me in the hallway. I know. Oh, wow, I used to acknowledge yeah. you. That's hilarious. When I, was, when I was allowed to call you Larry. I cannot remember those days. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you uh, shared a, a, a very interesting uh, uh, conversation about, uh, mm-hmm. uh, about, about pitching and your, and your right. style. 
mm-hmm. and you know how it's going to be different for certain things. Right. Uh, I was hoping you would talk about that for a little bit, and then we can uh, wrap things up. You know, just kind of uh, mm-hmm. that that process, what you try to bring to it, if it's different for different kinds of shows and stuff. The best advice I can give on pitching is to be very clear about what your particular thing is about and to pitch it very cleanly, you know, tell a very clear story, you know, about what it is, you know. Make the characters as as easy to understand as possible, alive. And anytime you can relate it to you personally, it's always a good thing to do. For instance, I love, anytime I can start off a pitch with, um, I love this because this is something that actually happened to me. Great, I'm relating it to myself. Yeah. People love when you can relate yeah, to yourself. Yeah, right, okay. You know, or you could say, uh, this is a thing that happened to a friend of mine, actually, or or we all can relate to this. Anytime you make it personal and you make it relatable, it's easier to pitch because then you're you're speaking from an organic place. Um, it, it just forces you into more of an organic speaking. And here's what organic speaking is. Organic speaking is when the truth of whatever it is makes you speak eloquently. <laughs> That's what organic speaking is because you so firmly believe in what it is you're speaking, there's no tension that comes out in it. You have a firmness. And even if it's rehearsed, it can come off more unrehearsed. Exactly. But non-organic speaking, when you're talking about anything, your nerves get a little magnified because you don't have the same authority in your voice. You know? So unless you're really good at that, it's harder to do that. So, And by organic speaking, I mean speaking about something that's very authentic to you know, to whatever it is you're talking about that you can relate to that is real and all that kind of stuff. Something right? that you believe, something right, that excites exactly. you, genuinely excites Absolutely. you. Absolutely. If they don't, see that, genu- you. If That's they don't right. see that genuine excitement from you, then how do they expect you to translate that, that on the page right. for the audience? So if you're pitching something that you believe in your head is funny, you know, it's different than when you really know in your gut that it's funny, that you really, really love it, you know. Right. So that's why you got to. You should really be absolutely in love with whatever it is you're pitching. Right. At the yeah. at the very least, I mean, obviously, you're going to have a certain passion for whatever right. project that you're working on, but you need to find out really, go a little deeper than even the surface that you might be working on right. into your gut to find out really what it is right. that draws you to this. What what is it that makes you right. so in love with this piece and 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 right. bring that out? Uh, my friend Chris Mundy again mentioned. Um, putting them in a position to feel that also that you're the only one who can do this. You're the best right. person to do this. So how do you approach that? And, or is that a conscious thing? Well, I always um, try to know who it is I'm pitching to. And sometimes I'll tailor my pitch to that depending on what it is. Um, I remember I pitched a show to Kevin Ryan who's at NBC. And we went out to dinner. He just wanted to hear a pitch. I actually wasn't ready to pitch to him. But since he wanted to hear it, I just spoke to him in terms of themes and generally what the show is about, and I appeal to his sense of what he likes to do. So I told him I wanted to do a comic version of Glengarry Glen Ross, you know, and, of I wanted, and I wanted to set it in a car dealership, because I wanted, and I just talked about the theme of we sell ourselves every single moment of the day, and that's what the show is about, constantly selling everything all day long, doesn't matter Nervously what it is. Nervously selling ourselves. Anything about yourself, whether you're trying to get laid or whatever it is, we're always selling something, you know. And so I talked about that theme with him and, and kind of bringing in the, a little bit of the darkness quality and how much I felt that world had, we haven't really explored, that car-selling world on television. Right, you know? but I mean, it's, it, feel, it feels like the idea like that the 
world's fascination with car salesmen right. might not even come into the picture as much as like exactly. once you get that theme done, you bargaining. see that you, you can also see that that theme can be well addressed in this setting. Absolutely right. Because at the end of the day, it really has nothing to do with selling cars, right? Right. And so, and he connected with what I was connecting with him about, about selling ourselves all day long. And he bought it right there at dinner, you know, oh, God, and ended that. up making the pilot, you know, and it surprised me because I didn't But when know. the check came, he's like, um, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. where's my, uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and what... I remember uh, once I, I, I sold a drama once to NBC where um, I just went right into f- a first-person narrative, you know, which is very unusual to do. And uh, and it really kind of freaked him out a little but bit. But this is in a more of a formal meeting. Yeah, yeah. but th- this is in a meeting, but I went to first-person narrative. And by that, I started telling the story as if it was happening right then, you know. So um, we set our pleasantries, and then I, I just looked at them and I said, um, Everybody remembers what happened at St. Jude's, but not everybody knows what really happened. When John died, you know, everybody was shocked. And I went into this story, and the tension was just, I mean, you could cut it with a knife, you know, and I talked about this kid who had died, what had happened, and nobody knows the real story, and we're going to, you know, and all these things, and I talked about all the intricacies. And, they were, and then at the end of it, everybody was silent, and one of them said, did that really happen? <laughs> I said, no, I just made it up. I said, it's not true, but this is what the show is. I said, that's how the show starts. Our narrator oh, says these and things. And I love the idea but, that I wonder how many people in the room, when you said, like, everybody knows it, yes, they were nervous, like, I, I don't want to admit on the one that doesn't I know what did, he's talking that's about. That's exactly what I did. I did it assuming that they would go along. I said it Out of just right nice. at them like that. I said, everybody remembers what happened in St. Just, but... Not everybody remembers what really happened. And when I said that, they were brought in because they're like, you're exactly what you Tell said. Tell me what really happened because I don't remember. Yes, exactly. I remember reading right, exactly. it. I read about it in the Times. Exactly. And so it was a, it was a murder Fuck. mystery that took place in a high school. And it took place over four years. And it was someone looking back at this four God. years of high school in a murder mystery. And, uh, and they loved it, you know. And so when I told them, no, 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 I just made this up. They're like, and so they were like, this is great. Do it. Let's do it. You know? That's brilliant. So, but, I, but so sometimes, so that was an example of putting a pitch into first-person narrative is what I call it, you know. And then just mixing up. And other times I just go in and just straightforward, just say what the characters are, what the idea of the show is, tell the jokes that I think are there, get some laughs, and boom, I'm out. Boom, right. boom, and you're out. You boom, know? boom, I'm out. <laughs> All right, Larry, this was... Amazing! I knew it would be. I, I was hoping it would pan out like this. Thank you so much for doing it. My pleasure, it. JR. Um, hopefully, uh, we will. There's so much more in my notes and so much more. We'll we do can part talk two. About. Part two, Larry Wilmore, coming soon. Say good night, Larry. Good night, Larry. You heard him, blockheads. Part two coming soon. I'll keep you posted. Until then, why not take a trip into the Writer's Block archive? I mentioned Sarah Silverman in this episode, so that's my pick. Episode 11, Sarah Silverman, which features not only some amazing insight into the industry and the business of comedy, but also Sarah's influences and the perhaps surprisingly deep reason she likes one show in particular. See, it's hard because I think it's important to be influenced and inspired. I watch Girls. I watch Louie. You know, when I happen upon Parks and Rec, I love it. So good. I love that it has heart, but it's it's straight up funny, but it's got, it's kind of beautiful too. And I think that's a combination that comics have been afraid of for a long time. You know, like comedy and, and beauty, you know. So much more great stuff in that episode. Definitely check it out. And join us again on August 28th for episode 23 with guest Tom Ruprecht former writer for The Late Show with David Letterman and author of This Would Drive Him Crazy, 
A Phony Oral History of J.B. Salinger, available on Kindle August 27th. Thank yous all around to co-producer David Klatt, beat layer downer Pete Miser, pencil drawing guy Andrew Lynn, and design guru Greg Duncan. I'm J.R. Havlin. This is Writer's Block Podcast. Thanks for listening. Say goodnight, blockheads. Thank you.